Well, hello, and welcome to the Insecurity Project. I'm your host, Jamin Fraser, and I am on a mission to end the unnecessary suffering caused by the fear of not being good enough. We've all got it. We've all got to work through it. But thankfully, there is a clear, intelligent, and complete solution to the insecurity problem, and that is what this project is all about. Hope you enjoyed today's program. Hey folks, another live coaching session. Always a treat to be able to do this. Always requires a great deal of vulnerability and courage from a willing participant. So I have Claire today who's been willing to share what's going on for her and have that coach. So uh, Claire, I acknowledge you and thanks for being willing to have a coaching session today. Thank you, Damon. I appreciate the opportunity. So what's exciting about this is that you're pretty green to the coaching space. You haven't heard me coach before. You haven't had a coaching session before. So, uh, you know, that's super courageous to dive in and go, yeah, cool, let's let's have a go without even really knowing what this conversation will be like. So setting up a couple of ground rules is probably really important because, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm non-negotiable about is framing conversations before I have them. Um so by that I mean, like, I find I get into trouble and end up having messy conversations with people if I'm not clear about how we're having the conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that. If you kind of, it's it's common to have multiple frames or, or multiple hats with with the same people. You know, you kind of your friends, but your work colleagues. Maybe you're also related. Um, maybe you're playing netball together. You know, so at any one time, you could be showing up in any one of those frames. Yeah. And if you you think you're talking as friends, the other person thinks you're talking as colleagues, um, then the words uh, have a very different meaning for you and, and your friend. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So being clear about in what way we're having this conversation, it, it means, makes sense to have clean, clean conversations. So when I say coach... I'm not sure what that means for you, but what it means for me is is you know two things first and foremost. Um, this is a, a judgment-free space, and that is uh, you know I, I have lots of friends and um, colleagues who work in the personal development space as counselors or coaches or psychologists, and I think um, the greatest challenge for people like me in this space is not to get in the way and. And we get in the way when we bring our own sense of wanting to the conversation. So we try and give advice or try and fix or try and be the expert. Um, but when I, when I hear coach, coach is here to serve entirely. It's your life. You're the one with the problem. You're the one with the desired outcome. And this conversation is entirely around getting you more of what you want. So therefore, there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. It's not for me to say what you should or shouldn't be doing because it's not my life or my problem or my outcome. My job is to be a good mirror to you, to help you see what you can't see, to help you deconstruct what appears to be messy or mysterious or strange problems and to help you see them as part of patterns and process and review the data around those so that awareness can give you more choice and you can change them. Does that all sound okay? Sounds fantastic. Great. So it kind of creates this very clean space to have an honest conversation and, you know, I don't care. So it's not... You can't please me or disappoint me, so I have no vested interest in you. I won't lose any sleep over you. I, you'll tell me sad stories. I won't cry. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't confuse me for someone who cares <laughs> because 
Uh, that's I can't, obviously I care. I'm a nice person. I, I'm sure I am, um, but I've realised a long time ago that caring about someone else's problems is the least useful I could possibly be because it will mean I'll get in the way. So yeah, I like uh, that. <laughs> yeah, cool. So in that in that light, clean conversation. Let's swing away. Uh, what is it that you're bringing to the table that you'd like to see a measure of change in today? Um. So as we discussed briefly previously. It's quite hard for me to put my finger on, which is possibly part of the problem. Um, I am very good at gaining knowledge and having an awareness of areas that I need to change. But I'm particularly bad at, first of all, planning and then executing those plans. So when I was thinking about preparation for this call, I, I realized how I sum that up is that I listen to podcasts or I've been to seminars or I'll read lots of books or I'll screenshot, for example, things that I see on social media that make sense to me about things other people are doing in this particular area of life. And then instead of actually actioning those things, I just keep a storage of that knowledge without executing anything. And I'm aware that I'm doing it. I just don't know how to take the step from being aware that I am not doing the things that I want to do and then actually taking the steps to do them. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. Is there anything else about that that you think is relevant to the conversation? Um, yeah, I think it just fits in, um, you know, time time management, um, self-discipline, um procrastination these are all words that kind of come to mind that um you know not doing the things that I feel like I should do that are good for me and then doing the things that I think are not good for me and not really know how it not knowing how to break that cycle where do I interject and make different choices I guess in line with the things that I think that I want or say that I want and yeah, yeah, yeah. To, t- to start to turn those things around. Hmm. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, again, acknowledge your, your courage for sharing that. That's really cool. And uh, are you okay for us to explore what's actually going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I don't know if you could imagine... Uh, well, let me, let me just ask you, when you were at school... Uh, did you go to school by any chance? Are you, are you, uh, you, yes, you uh, completed I am. school? I did, yes, I did. Did you enjoy school? I loved school. I think that I was lucky enough to be academic, so it worked for me. Uh, okay. Um, but I and I also loved the social side too. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, first of all, did this pattern show up at school? Yes, it really did. So, on reflection, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can recall clearly enough as far back as high school necessarily, but yeah. I, I had done a, I've done a degree as an adult and I in a subject that I love because I'm trained as a chiropractor. Right. But I found that even in a, in a situation where I claimed I was passionate about a topic, that I still wouldn't yeah. put those plans in place that I knew would give me the best possible outcome from that study. I knew yeah, that that's right. what I should do, and I knew I knew that there were tools available for me to utilize and make the most of, but then I didn't actually put those plans in place. Uh-huh. I would kind of wing it. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
So in your, if, if you did a gentle review of your entire life, do you think that there are any exceptions to this rule? Has there been any period, even for a short amount of time or in any sphere of your life, where you feel like you've been able to not only take on knowledge but actually apply it as you would like to? Um, I have definitely done it sporadically but right. inconsistently. Okay. So it will be it, for possibly short bursts of time and when I say short bursts of time I'm literally probably talking about two weeks before something will distract me again and I'll revert back to old habits. Yeah, sure, okay. Um, so back to school, did you study any sciences at school? Yes, I did biology, physics and chemistry. Hmm. Um, did you enjoy did you enjoy science? I loved biology in particular. And what was it about biology that intrigued you? Um, I loved particularly human biology, so a special interest in how the human body works. Huh. And more from a big picture perspective, I guess. Um, just a fascin yeah, well. fascination of what makes people tick. So even hmm. my experience with anatomy, for example, I found it very challenging to sit down and be told this is called this and this is called that. I kind of wanted to bypass those building blocks and just get to the big picture of how what how all of that fit together. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, well, yeah, it does make sense. That's, that's really cool. Is it okay if we leverage that uh, curiosity and that passion and uh, apply it to this problem as well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. One of the things that I, I love about conversations around human behaviour is I love how scientific they are. And and I too, I'm a very curious person and I, I'm always intrigued by why and, and how it works. And the, the thing that I've come to see around our own stuff is that, you know, most people imagine it's mysterious or strange or uh, unknowable or broken. But just like a scientist, when a scientist puts on a lab coat and goes uh, to observe a certain thing. A scientist has great confidence that that thing can be deconstructed and understood all the way back to the to the start. That's kind of the science bent. Like, oh no, we can if we ask the right questions and run the right tests, we can actually understand what's happening here. Yep. And it will be entirely knowable very few things that we can't work out. So the same is true in terms of human behaviour, to go, what if we would deconstruct your behaviour and examine why? Uh, and if you were to be curious long enough and take the judgement out of it, because you can't do awareness and judgement at the same time, so if you're frustrated about this, it's actually very hard to observe it. If yeah, you put a lab coat on, the scientist isn't frustrated. Is a word, yeah. Yeah, if you're a scientist, the scientist isn't frustrated about observing what's going on. They're, they're curious. And it's that curiosity that gives them confidence that the problem can be understood. Other people might be frustrated, going, ah, oh, man, it's so annoying. Why has this happened? But a scientist goes, oh, cool, let me at it. What can we discover? So if you put your lab coat on and were to examine your own behaviour, do you think that could give you a different sense of how solvable this is? Yeah, I do. 
Cool. Well, one of my favourite terms from the wor- world of coaching, and specifically NLP, have you come across neuro-linguistic programming? I have indeed, yes. Uh, cool. Are you familiar with one of the presuppositions from NLP that people work perfectly? No, <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, tell me about why that was funny. What what went off for you when I said that? <laughs> um, I think the word perfect probably is what made me chuckle because I think I I think I've probably spent time trying to move away from my perception of perfectionism because I think that my perception of or my need to appear perfect is probably part of the problem that holds me back <laughs> yeah sure accepting myself from how I am from a sense of being perfect more as a, I'm not good enough, and therefore I'm always striving for perfection. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, just just to differentiate those two things, perfectionism is actually the lack of standards. It's it's not ever knowing what is enough, and so it's just being aware that this is not enough. So I need to do more, have more, be more. Um, but this idea that people work perfectly is not that at all. The people work perfectly presupposition says the results you're getting are not broken they're actually perfect for how they were created. So if you think of it scientifically or think of it even in an engineering term or a manufacturing way, you see go to a factory and you see a widget come out of an assembly line, even if it's not the one you want, it's not broken. It's, you know, it's perfect for how it was designed. So the sum total of what's happening in the factory and all those parts along the assembly line produces a product, not the product's fault. Yeah, the product isn't in a vacuum. It's not outside of the assembly line. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So if you were to examine your own behaviour and go, this is not random, weird, disconnected, a coincidence, and it's not broken, of course. Of course you keep doing what you don't think you're going to do. Of course you keep not doing what you think you are going to do. Of course. Perfect for the strategy that you've created. Yep. That's a little offensive. I, I get it. Because um, it's not. I get it's not what you want. But if you could step outside that and, and observe it with curiosity, you could see that you have an incredible capacity to reproduce the same patterns against all better judgment, against all intention, against all desire. The same end product keeps coming out of the same factory. <laughs> yeah. And every and every time it comes out, you go, oh, man, this is weird. That's strange. That's mysterious. That's broken. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop it. I'm going to be different. I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to be more disciplined or motivated or just be better next time. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. And so... You know, you could see how strange a strategy or how ineffective that that strategy would be if you were in manufacturing to to consistently try and fix the end product when it's coming out day and night like that. Yeah. It would make much more sense to go and have an inquiry around what part of the factory keeps producing the result like that and go make some changes there. Yeah. Which is Does that make interesting sense? as an analogy because currently I am working in an engineering factory. <laughs> well, that's so, so it, actually, it does, does. It does make a lot of sense to me. And in that capacity, I guess my science brain 
would automatically look to the earlier processing systems rather than the final product. And I would recognize yeah, to do course. that very quickly. Yeah, well, well, there you go. So here's the cool thing around coaching. Like You're the expert, and you have all that you need inside. You're ready to solve this problem. You're the one who created it. You're the one who'll fix it. My job is to help you see what you can't see and and see what you're pretending not to see, and that's going to give you more choice around getting you what you want. Yep. Uh Cool. So this paperwork perfectly thing is actually very, very useful, and uh, it's a game changer. Like I, I tell this story all the time because it's such a great example of this. I had a lady recently who came and saw me. Um, you know, quite green to coaching like you. Her intention was to uh, have me help her lose 15 kilos. She realised it was probably not just about diet and exercise. That there may have been some some deeper issues there, but she couldn't understand what it was, what was going on and was quite, you know, exhausted and frustrated that she hadn't been able to do it. She thought surely a smart, creative, intelligent person like me would have worked out how to lose 15 kilos. It can't be that hard. But here she was still battling with that same weight for nearly 15 years. And and I go, well, okay, cool. I mean, clearly it's working for you. Clearly you need to be fat. Um what do you expect? You're not, it's not broken. And, you know, and we both stopped and after a moment silence, then burst into laughter because it's like, hang on, in what other setting could I say those words to that woman without copying a face full of coffee? You know, there is no other setting. But I don't care. Not, not my extra weight. It's not affecting me at all. Yeah. It's just helping her see that it's not broken. It's not strange. Of course, it's perfect for the strategy that she's designed. Yeah. And when we look back and see what the strategy is, uh, she had a very painful experience being uh, in 15 years prior where she was engaged, we married, her fiancé cheated on her, and that was the time when she was at her most attractive. Yeah, wow. And so, so she had never envisaged a life outside of that relationship and didn't want to envisage a life outside of that relationship. So actually found a way to sweep that pain under the carpet and sail on with the wedding. But unconsciously, she developed a strategy to deal with that moment. Yeah. Any idea what that strategy was? To get fat. But how? Why would that be a strategy? Because if she feels that fat is not attractive and she didn't want to be attractive anymore because she possibly associated being attractive with that painful period, then she could cover up that previous version of herself and reinvent herself, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think you think you're down the right path. I reckon there was some... When we really deconstructed it, it was close to that, but the real specifics of the strategy was she got rejected when she showed up at her best. Yeah. Which is which is ultimate pain. So she could not afford that to happen ever again. If she wasn't going to leave the relationship, she now had to protect herself in the relationship. So she never showed up at her best again. And so the extra weight was an actual was actually a hideout, was a safety net. So if she was to be rejected, it was the fat her being rejected, not the real her. Yeah. Does that make really sense? Powerful. Yeah, really powerful. And I funnily enough that you said about rejection have recently uncovered a situation that 
I had to think about something that was traumatic in my life and I have to begin this conversation with I have been extremely blessed and fortunate growing up so I don't have any horror stories of um, abuse or you know the, the the real issues which I believe other people go through I think if we were to look at our lives relative which I know we're not supposed to compare but still I had sort of gone through most of my life really feeling very lucky and very fortunate and sometimes the the very nature of that has been what's caused a lot of confusion and frustration in me with sometimes anxiety levels and that kind of thing because I couldn't relate what I was experiencing to what my past experiences were and my knowledge of those. Okay, However, sure. this particular instance was something that came up that was seemingly so small, but I can see on reflection how it would have had a huge difference. And around rejection, like you've just spoken about with that lady, it was an incident when I was in primary school where um, we were auditioning for the local the school production. And how that um, audition process went is that it was actually in front of the whole school. So the whole school were present while we, while each person did the audition, and it was for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And okay. Each person got up on stage and did the audition, and then it was like a blind vote where each of us then had to kneel down in front of the rest of the school, and as the teacher pointed to each person, the hands went up of the rest of the school, and the school voted for who they wanted <laughs> wow. to part. So, um, I went through that process. <clears throat> it was, but it was also um, anonymous in some ways because you didn't know who voted or how many. You know, it was it was anonymous in that we didn't see, but fair in the fact that it was your peers and the teachers were making the decisions. You know, and it was open to everybody, so it was a majority vote, which I think is pretty fair. And um, what happened was, I got voted to play the part of. Veruca Salt, which I was super excited about. And afterwards, the teacher pulled me aside and said to me, um, Claire, I know that you got voted, you know, legitimately as a result of your audition, but I don't believe you have the capacity to play the role or learn the lines that are required to to do this. So I'm actually taking the part off you and giving it to another student. And you mm -hmm. can still be involved in the play, but as a lesser role, you know, that doesn't require as much learning of the lines. So on one hand, I had been super excited that I got, you know, I had successfully got through this audition, and then moments later that just got whipped away from me. And, yeah, yeah it, was well. a, it was an interesting thing that it's come up only recently, years and years later, because it was in primary school, of of how significant a moment that would have been, I suppose, as far as, you know, I guess it's a similar situation. You put yourself up on the stage, you do the best you can. First of all, there's acceptance, and then there was, you know, a blatant, actually, no, those people weren't correct in making that judgment of you, and so we're going to change the situation. So, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's been really interesting to discover what's come from that. So rejection, the feeling of not good enough, somebody in authority actually saying that out loud to you, direct to your face, and it sort of makes me wonder how that has played out in lots of areas of my life since. So, you know, put yourself on the stage and you get seen and then, I guess, judged and accepted. And then the outcome of that obviously was quite traumatic, apparently. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, wow. 
amazing and um, good, good awareness for you. That's really cool to be able to see that and understand that that has played a part somehow. Uh, so are you willing to look at some dots to be joined and uh, some more awareness so you've got more choice around this? Yes, definitely. So could you see that if there is a fear there, maybe created in, in those moments of um, perceiving rejection, that when you showed up and you did your best and your best wasn't enough or your best got even though you thought it was enough and someone had the power to take it away from you and that hurt, that unconsciously you may have created a strategy so that pain never happens again. Yes, I definitely can see that. <laughs> uh, and so that strategy around, well, you know knowledge, consciously you know knowledge is going to be useful, um, but knowledge is going to push you forward. Knowledge is going to cause you to step out, to take action, to step up, to grow, to change. So knowledge actually becomes dangerous because it exposes you to potential for more rejection. Yeah. Does that? Can you see that link? Definitely. So then unconsciously the strategy around going, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep knowledge at arm's length. I'm going to look like I'm taking knowledge on board, but I'm going to resist it because I know that if I was to actually accept this, that knowledge is going to push me out of my comfort zone and I might get hurt. Yeah. So what looks like a motivation problem or a discipline problem or a procrastination problem, it's actually a rejection problem, a fear problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that 100%. It's a strange mm. situation that I I do a really good job of encouraging other people in this area. Um and coaching is actually something that so many people have said to me about pursuing for myself. <laughs> and I think part of that is um, knowing that that's probably in me and somewhat wired for helping others in that way. But it also requires, well, vulnerability, as we've talked about, but also being seen. and the Yeah, for sure the conflict within me that I want to be able to help others but I don't I don't want to be seen in the process. Oh, yeah, so. for sure. Amazing. <laughs> so so let me just, just circle back a moment and uh, push back on on a statement you just made um, that you are really good at encouraging others. Uh, are you sure? Oh well that's a good question. <laughs> Expand on that for me. Well uh, I understand. Well, let me let me think. Let me let me push back to what I think I heard you say. Um, that you have desire to see others succeed. You have a, a strong intention and desire for others to grow and change, and be all they can be, and step out into their space and do what they're good at. And and you communicate that to others. That's uh, yes. Yep. So. But I would question your assessment about how effective your encouragement actually is. Ah. Uh, and here's here's what I'm thinking. Uh, are you a parent? No, I'm not, no. Uh, you've been a child, though, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently so, yes. Apparently so. I still am in some areas. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, one of the interesting parenting strategies that... 
I'm sure you've observed from your own parents at times and watched other parents do is is do what I say, not what I do. Yes. Uh, and it's a big game and and everyone knows it's a game, including the kids. You know, if there ever was people with sensitive hypocrisy meters, it's kids. Kids <laughs> go, yeah, okay. I Yeah, I can hear some words, but I also watch you all day, every day, and I see through your words. So uh, they have no power. Um, what, what's the greatest gift a parent actually can give their child in terms of being useful to them, do you think? Um, be in the example? Of course, it's to model what it looks like because then you actually show them it's possible. You know, so many parents' strategy is to tell the kids, you can be awesome, you can do anything, you can put whatever you put your heart and mind to, you can achieve and you're wonderful, you're awesome. And the kid's like, I'm hearing you, but this must be some game because if that was all true, then, mum, why are you doing nothing with your life, staying in this functional relationship, scared to do anything? Like, clearly that's a fairy tale that parents tell kids to help them sleep at night. Clearly it's not true. Because if it was so true, you would have done it. Yeah. So it actually does the opposite of encouraging. It, it instills fear. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. It undermines. So uh, uh, the pushback is not on your intention, not at all. I, the intention to be useful to others, beautiful. Strategy, I wonder if it's as effective as you think it is. Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree with you because I'm aware, even as I am trying to encourage others, really what I'm trying to do is turn it around in myself. Mm-hmm. But it's yep. easier to deflect it <laughs> and make it somebody else's issue and I can then still stand on the sidelines. And the people who exactly. have said to me, Claire, you're really good at this. I know in my heart that if that was the case, then... I think exactly like you said, if it was if, if it was as simple as getting out and doing it, I would have done it by now. And I think that's yeah. probably part of why we're having this conversation is because I haven't <laughs> done it yeah. by now. And knowing that you can't advise others when you're not um, taking your own advice because you feel like a fraud, you feel inauthentic. Exactly. And it doesn't, you know, it's not in alignment with what you're saying and what you're doing and what your life is actually, how your life mm. is playing out and what you're demonstrating. So I wholeheartedly agree. Beautiful. <laughs> so that. hold that space for yourself right now. So coaching is all around outcomes. So your your desired outcome to be act, to actually be useful to others, to actually be someone who encourages, to actually be someone who is part of motivating and enthusing and, you know, empowering others. How how does anyone actually ever achieve that? Like, how do you get there? Hmm. I don't know. I think that's why I need you. Well, yeah, maybe that was a complicated question. Um, <laughs> what kind of what kind of person actually is an encouragement to others? <clears throat> Somebody that is already being encouraging. Or feels encouraged, is encouraged. Yeah, for sure. They've worked out how to encourage themselves first. So they're living, yeah. they're actually living that truth. Um, yeah. So in order to get your outcome, the way is not to be more focused on others. It's actually to fix this for yourself first. Yeah. 
Uh, and and so back with the lab coat and being curious, no judgment, and reviewing the factory, because you've discovered that there's this factory that's creating strategy to protect you from rejection by holding knowledge at an arm's length so you don't have to step out. And you're even clear around the fact that there was a defining moment around that play that created this fear. Uh, you won't actually just zoom in on that moment and deconstruct it even further to see exactly what part of that experience actually created that fear? Yep. Yes, I am. Um, cool. Have you come across the seven practices uh, for overcoming insecurity, That the model that I use? Uh, no, not the specific steps. Um, so the, the second practice is to take 100% responsibility and uh, the, the distinction there, once you've kind of got clear, you've stepped in the light and go, oh, my goodness, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid of being found out. I'm afraid that, you know, rejection would highlight the fact that there's some inadequacy with you. You're not quite good enough. You don't deserve love. And, oh, my goodness, that's that's terrible. And But when you observe it, you kind of think, oh, wow, but I have this fear because of what happened to me. You know, people in power abuse that power and use that power to hurt me and instill this fear in me. And so, yeah, I did have that experience and it is part of my history and whether I should have had it or shouldn't have had it, I do have it and kind of what do I do with that now? Because it's deeply affected me. Yeah. So is that does that kind of ring true, that kind of thinking? Absolutely, spot on. Hmm. So uh, how does anyone ever change that? Because you... You can't change what happened. So the responsibility piece actually works on some beautiful science around uh, the human being and the way we create beliefs. So, uh, you know, a very essential element of being a human is that we are storytellers. So we, are, we are sense-making creatures. We go into the world and we have experiences but we tell stories about those experiences to make sense of them. Yep. Does that make sense? Yes. So five people all having the same experience are actually not having the same experience at all because they're all telling a story about that experience and that story then becomes their experience. Yep. Does that make sense? It does, definitely. So it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, when I when I kind of reviewed this work in my own life and discovered there's a whole bunch of insecurity, I went back to painful moments of rejection and failure and disappointment and, you know, having harsh words said to me and kind of thought, oh, man, that's why, that makes sense, I, I clearly see that. And but, but when I understood this around storytelling, it helped me to realise that I'm not the actor in the story, I'm the one with the pen and paper, I, I'm the storyteller. So, you know, it wasn't in year three when the teacher called me stupid. That's not what created fear and insecurity in me. It was when she called me stupid. Have a guess what I said. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I am, or I agree with you. Or... I, agree. I agree. In my yep. internal response was, <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Huh. So it wasn't her opinion. Yeah. That inflicted pain. It was my opinion. Yeah. It wasn't that moment that my dad wasn't there that I wanted him to be there. That's not what created insecurity for me and told me that I wasn't worthwhile. It's that when he wasn't there, what story did I tell? Yeah. How do I make sense of that? 
who knows why he wasn't there? Like, was he late? Did he have a flat tyre? Was it not on his calendar? Was he not even supposed to be there? Had I just thought he was supposed to be there? But whatever actually happened, whatever he decided, whatever he did or not did, I decided the reason he wasn't there was because I wasn't worthy of his time. Yeah, this is what it means and what we make it mean. This is what it means, exactly. So, you know, this saying, this saying it is what it is, is such a strange statement. Nothing is what it is. It is what you decide it is. Yeah. And we don't have access to that level of objectivity, especially as kids. We, we have a negativity bias. We're trying to stay safe. So we tend towards telling negative stories about ourselves in moments of pain. Hmm. What is that? <laughs> what is what? Why is that the case? <laughs> well, is that, well, you is think that it, how we would describe the human condition. Well, no, you think about dating back to prehistoric times. You think about how having a negativity bias could have been very useful for our survival. Yeah. So, if we're more focused on the things that can harm us, you know, saber-toothed tigers, woolly mammoths, other tribesmen, rather than focused on, you know the kind words or someone who cares about us, like you have to be very aware of all the dangers. Yeah. And if you're across danger, then you're more likely to survive. If you're just in fairyland focusing on the nice things, maybe you'll miss out on the signals of of danger and you'll die. Yeah. So you can imagine how that negativity bias was was valuable Um, and a part of our DNA, part of our hardwired System. So and probably still is valuable. It's just whether it's overactive or not. Exactly right. And and the, but the point is, it it might even you know whether it should or shouldn't be part of us. It is. And you know, and being being a child is a vulnerable time of life. We we come into an adult's world and we have to make sense of it. And the adults entrusted to raise us are far from perfect, and dealing with a whole bunch of their own stuff. So inadvertently, will hurt us whether they intend to or not. And as children, trying to make sense of the world with limited awareness, limited maturity, limited resourcefulness and a negativity bias, invariably we tell negative stories about moments of pain. Yeah. Now, the beautiful news is that they're just stories. And we're the storyteller. So guess what that means? We can change the story. We can change the story. We really can. We can go back and review the data. You can go back to that experience and go, hmm, when that happened, this was said and this was done, I decided it meant this. What else could it mean? What other stories could be told? Yeah. I'm making notes as we're going. <laughs> yeah, cool. Can you feel the power of that, though? Can you feel how that positions you in this whole factory setup? Absolutely. It's just interesting that the first thing, as you were describing that, was I was questioning what I can change the story to. So straight away I felt there was a blockage as I can't, even though I I guess I understand stand intellectually that that's the point straight away my brain was like well what other the spin could I put on that what what else could it mean other than what I made it to mean and that's what came yeah. up for me straight away as you're describing yeah beautiful and such a common bit of patterning do you know what if you were to deconstruct that 
Do you know what that is evidence of? No, I don't. Um, part of you likes the old story. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Doesn't yeah. want to let go of it. Doesn't want there to be an alternative. It's worked yeah. for you for this many years. It's kept you safe. Yeah. If you were just to change a story, then that means you have to going to go step up and out again. <laughs> yes. Ah, oh, round and round we go in the circle. <laughs> exactly right. So, so, so I mean, there's a lot of conversations to be had here that could be had, and there's some work to be done, as you could imagine. Yeah. And and hard to do all that work in 45 minutes. Yeah. Really. And so, you know, there are a bunch of practices. Taking responsibility is one of the seven practices for how people solve this problem. And so there, there are a bunch of other stuff that is important to establish as a way of positioning yourself as a storyteller and, and uh, doing that work, doing that work in a way that lasts and so that you can show up to life at your best where it matters most. And, and actually live the way that you think you will and the way that you'd like. But the process has to start somewhere. And yep. this conversation, like your level of willingness to see some stuff that you've never seen before or to consider some options that, that have never been available to you before is quite amazing. I really acknowledge you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Mm. My pleasure. So what... Sorry, I cut you off. Mm. No, I just said thank you for giving me the opportunity to see those things. Yeah, my pleasure. So what does this open up for you moving forward? Um, I think even just sitting and spending some time acknowledging that situation and and possibly trying to identify and uncover others to spend some mm. time in reflection and seeing where there may be other significant moments that crop up and reframing the story yeah, around beautiful. each of those significant times. Uh, yeah, um, amazing. That's, uh, you know, of all the work that I get to do with people, the majority of it is exactly what you described. It is reviewing data. It is it is taking it out of the realm of weird, strange, mysterious, and just going, hmm, look at this. I've created an agreement around some stuff, which has become a belief, which has created a story, which is producing a behavior. And it's yep. working exactly as I designed it to. Huh. <laughs> wow. Well, why, why am I so bewildered? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I fighting against this? That, that, would, that doesn't make any sense anymore. Let's yeah. go back and review it. Let's go back and explore what's actually going on. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. Uh, it feels like an okay place to leave the conversation. Obviously, it's big stuff, and we've uncovered a bunch of stuff for you. But is, is that you, would, would you be okay to leave the conversation here for today? Yes, definitely. That's um, it's made me chuckle <laughs> in a good way um, with some aha moments, and even just that starting point of do one thing at a time. Because I think even if you're given a whole lot of strategies all at once, even that can be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And these of things course. obviously are a process. So having one key area to work on just by identifying those particular instances in my life on on review and on reflection and just seeing how, well, well, first of all, what story I told myself about them and then being able to go back and reframe the story. Yeah. And it probably won't come as any surprise that I've probably told the same or a similar story around each incident. So... Oh, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Cool. Well, I'll, I'll send you the summary of the seven practices just so you've got that as a roadmap to go, hmm, okay, cool, there's some, there's some work to be done, but at least you know the kind of work. At least you know there is a way to solve this yeah. rather than just being something you're consistently frustrated about and, um, you know, bewildered that you haven't found a way to solve it yet. Wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, well, we'll leave the conversation there. And, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure being invited into your world to, to be able to talk through this stuff today. Thank you, Damon. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. I hope you found the content and conversations useful. And remember, you are not just the actor in the story, you are the storyteller. You have the ability to turn this all around. For more information about overcoming insecurity, check out theinsecurityproject.com.